This message is part of the teaching provided by House on the Rock Fellowship, a church caring for the Miami Valley region. Before you listen, be sure to access the notes in the download section of the message page. Have a Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. My name is Adam Bennett, and I'm an elder here at House on the Rock. If you're visiting, no worries. Uh, We do have professional pastors, and and I only speak every so often, okay? Now, uh, that being said, uh, we're going to take a little journey this morning. We're going we're gonna to talk about the sacrament of communion. But first, we have to have that, that start, that beginning to a message. The relatable story, that's how we begin. We tell something that we can relate to, so we all come together and get on the same page. Uh, as usual, I've bitten off more than I can chew, and this is my notes. For today, poor, poor Ryan in the back has more slides than he knows what to do with. So we're going to keep this moving. Our relatable story this morning is: I have ten fingers, I have ten toes, and we're flip flops, so I could count them. Okay, if you have ten fingers and ten toes, we can relate. If you don't have ten fingers and ten toes then you're not quite whole. You're a little broken. We can relate. All right? All right. Now, let's get on to talking about the sacrament of communion. That's, that's what we're teaching on today. If you have the first slide on, on uh, the sacrament, that's the first word. We just got to get through the words first. A sacrament is a Christian rite such as baptism or the Eucharist. Okay, so part of explaining what a sacrament is is bringing up communion. That is believed to have been ordained by Christ and that is held to be a means of divine grace or to be a sign or symbol of a spiritual reality. A sign or a symbol of a spiritual reality. That's a lot of wording. Thank you, Mr. Webster, for just turning around and spinning in circles. Uh, I think we're going to hold on to that last part, the sign. And we're going to say a better definition. This is one that I stole from from Pastor Paul. Uh, A better definition of of a sacrament is a metaphor in motion. Uh, I just overheard a young lady this morning talking about... uh, Actually, I got some advice just to do the old Baptist sin. We, we tell them what we're going to tell them. We tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. That's, that's the formula, right? And they said, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's just like writing an essay for college. You, you got your, you, you introduce, you give thesis, then you build it up, then you have your conclusion. And she said, I don't do that. I'm not good at writing an essay. I need prose. I need metaphor. Aaron just talked about metaphor. He said, covered in the wings, protected. Well, that's how God speaks. You're in luck. He uses prose. He uses metaphor. 
He, he doesn't write essays. Thank goodness. This would be one boring essay, but it's a big prose. It's a metaphor, and it's beautiful. A metaphor in motion. It's not just a picture, okay? It moves. A picture's worth a thousand words. What if that picture is moving? It's a movie. It's a play. Not just a movie or a play, one that we're cast in, one we participate in. That's a sacrament. We enact it physically in the now. We do it. That's the metaphor we're moving in. But that metaphor, when we enact it, we are also at the same time reenacting it. This has happened before. It's being done again. We're remembering and looking back at what has been done before. So we're reenacting, we're enacting, but also at the same time, we're pre-enacting. A better word for that would be rehearsal. We're rehearsing, we're practicing. It was, it is, it is to come. We're looking back, we're doing it now, and we're looking forward. We're doing what we're going to do in the future. Okay, that's the sacrament. That took a while just to get through the first word. What's the second word? The sacrament of communion. An act or instance of sharing. Okay, that's pretty good, Mr. Webster. Not bad. What else? Oh, okay, here we go. Definition of communion, part two, A, B, and C. A Christian sacrament in which consecrated bread and wine are consumed as memorials of Christ's death or as symbols for the realization of a spiritual union between Christ and communicate or as the body and blood of Christ. B, the act of receiving communion, the part of a communion service in which the sacrament is received, or... Finally, intimate fellowship or rapport. That whole middle there sounded like that college essay. I like the beginning and the end of that, and I want to hold on to it. The first was an act or instance of sharing. The end was intimate fellowship or rapport. I would like to combine those and say an act of sharing intimate fellowship. That is communion. There's uh, some etymology that comes along with that. I used etymology today, Matt. I used that in a sentence. Okay. It comes from the Latin communio. Communio meant meaning, mutual participation. Again, we're enacting this together. We're doing it together. Okay. And it comes from the Greek communis meaning common. Communis, the Greek word, was just used by Doug Brooks in his sermon a few weeks ago on communication. It's the root word for a lot of things. But let's talk about common first. Common is kind of sometimes negative. Uh, in the Greek word, communis was often used negatively to mean something lowly. It's down, down here. It's common. But not in this case. Common just means attainable. It's there for you. You can touch it. You can feel it. You can get a hold of this. You can get your arms around it. You can get your head around it. 
the sacrament itself, the elements, wine, bread, those are common. They're attainable. You don't have to be a gourmet chef. You don't have to live in a first world country. If you are anywhere near civilization in the world, you can get your hands on bread and wine, and also you will recognize them. They won't be foreign to you. Not foreign, in community. The root word for community is communis, communication. Again, Doug Brooks talked about communication. In communion, God is communicating. When I communicate, all you teachers going back to school, it is your job to communicate. What you do is you get ideas, thoughts, emotions and feelings, perspectives that you have, and you need to get them into somebody else. You communicate it to them. Once I have taken those thoughts and emotions and and put them into you, We have them in common. We communicate so that those things will be common between us. That's, it all comes around that word. From all directions, it's all coming together. That's what it's about. All right. So, when he communicates, what does he communicate? What thoughts does he believe he's going to share? Go ahead and bring up uh, Luke 22. Yeah. All right. And when the hour came, I'm going to read. I'm not turning my back on y'all. I'm going to do that a lot. But I often use a New King James Version. We use ESV in the seats. We're going to read off here because we're all going to be on the same page. We're going to communicate together. There's not going to be any miscommunication. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, that's the metaphor. That's the picture he's painting. The one we enact when we take communion. We enact through that. We reenact that. At the beginning of that, and I think that maybe if you're following along in your Bible... Just mark Luke 22, because we're just going to keep coming back to that and keep coming back to that. All the rest of these verses, and there's a lot of them we're going to hit today, they're all just pointing back to this one. So if you're just going to leave your finger in something, leave it in that one, and I'll work around the rest as we go. Let's just pause here on Luke 22 and recognize uh, 
Verse 19 was in yellow. I asked Ryan to do that. That's, that's not in yellow in your Bible. I did that. Uh, that is God in the flesh, our Savior Jesus, telling us to remember this. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember this. Remember what? Remember some wine and bread? He's telling you, I'm about to do something awesome. Before I do it, I know I'm going to do it. Before I do it, I need you to know how to remember it, how to think about it, how to reenact it. So, at the same time, he is reenacting. We've got a metaphor and a metaphor. I, I didn't mean to go this deep on you, but that's just how it is. God's deep. Uh, we need to look at what he was reenacting, which is Passover. He said at the beginning, I, I look forward to celebrating this Passover with you. So, if Jesus is celebrating the Passover, and we're supposed to be doing that along with him to remember him, Let's go look at the Jewish tradition of Passover. And in order to understand that Passover, we need to understand the Jewish experience and how we got to Passover. Because it is an epic story. And like any good epic, it has prequels. Okay? So we're going to go to the prequels way back, to the beginning. All right, we're going to start out in Genesis, the beginning. We're going to bring up Genesis 3, uh, 21. And we're going to frame this. Uh, hopefully you are familiar with the story. If not, we're in the garden. God created, and then he created man, and from him woman. And they were in the garden together, walking together, talking together. It was common for them to be together, walking and talking. They were in communion. They were in community, communicating daily. So common, so comfortable, they were naked. That comfortable, okay? You ever talk to God in the shower and then feel weird about it? Yeah, they didn't. That, that, that's how comfortable we're here. We're in that close of communion, all right? But then what? The sin. It breaks up the communion. The community is broken. The trust is broken. There's a problem. God comes and looks for them in the garden. Where are they at? They're hiding. He's calling out their name. They're trying not to answer. And they're trying to cover themselves. And I think we all remember, and they knew they were naked, Right? Did they just suddenly become aware of this? Were they real dumb and they got smart all of a sudden? No. There was shame. They were okay being naked. Now they're not. They don't feel comfortable having God see all of them anymore. They want to hide something from God. It's, it's no longer a comfortable, close relationship. So there has to be separation. It's broken. And here we are, separating. God has to pull back from the earth. Heaven's leaving, pulling away. But before he goes, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Is that just some kind of parting gift? 
No, that's the first sacrifice. He covered their shame. There's only one way to get skins. One way. Some animal, it lost its blood. It died, and God covered their shame. With that, that animal dying, it just covered their shame. It couldn't fix that communion. It couldn't heal up the garden and bring them back in. All it could do was cover their shame. All right. We're going to skip some more. One, two, skip a few in Genesis. We're going to head on to Abraham. Now, Abraham is the father of the Abrahamic religions. All people in monotheism, all people pretty much in the West and part of the East, recognize Abraham. He's the OG. He's for real. Okay? He's the reason we have the religion we have today. He is the beginning of the Jewish faith as it is known. Now, how do we know Abraham? Because when God says move and God calls his name, Abraham says, here I am. And then he says, okay. That's Abraham. Now, God comes to him at 75 and says, Abraham being 75 or Abram as he was known at the time. And he says, pack up your family, get all your belongings, leave the city you're from, and get out. Go where I tell you. When he says, Abram, he says, here I am. When he says, go, he says, okay, and he goes. The Lord comes back to him now that he's out traveling around, having all these adventures with the Lord. And at 80-something, he says to Abram, you're awesome. I love you. I'm going to be your protector, and I'm going to bless you. Maybe in a moment of weakness, Abram replies to him and says, that's great, God. Thank you. I appreciate you blessing me, but I need to point out that whatever you give me is temporary. Those blessings aren't going to continue on because I don't have an heir. Whatever I have is going to end with me. I have no, no heirs at all in my family, my Servants, slaves, workers, their children will inherit whatever you give me, not mine. God says, don't worry about it. I got you. Not only will I give you an heir, you, 80-something-year-old man and your wife, will have a child, a true heir. Also, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. And there you will go and your descendants will live. What is Canaan? Canaan, the land of milk and honey, the place the Jews are always trying to get to, is the promised land. But that's how it's known. Where, where are they going when they're walking through the desert? Always. We're always going to the promised land. So the next morning, right, he told them you're going to have a baby, and then you'll have an heir, and then you'll get Canaan. So they wake up the next morning, and his wife, Sarah, She's pregnant. Within a couple of weeks, there's a baby bump, and then they all move to Canaan. No, no. Uh, you see, they had some more adventures, and they kind of lost hope for a minute. But then at 99, 
Now Abram's 99. When I say a minute, I mean decades. God comes back to him and says, hey, remember, I told you, I made you a promise. You're going to have an heir, and then they're going to inherit the promised land. Well, I'm 99. I'm about to be 100. My wife's 90. Ladies, how does that sound? 90? Yeah. Them hot flashes was decades ago. Here we go. Let's have a baby. How about that? Yeah, she laughed too. She did. Sarah laughed. She's, <laughs> okay, if you say so. Well, then they have this crazy year. Because what happens when somebody's pregnant, when, they, when they're expecting? Brooks, that year is crazy. All right? That's what happens. And then Isaac is born, as promised. Now, way later than they would have chosen, but the promise comes. And Isaac is the miracle son. A miracle son is born to them. I mean... If I'm 100 and my wife's 90 and we have a son, that is a miracle. And that miracle is the heir to the promised land. Okay? Don't miss that metaphor, that picture. Now we're going to have a great old time, right? We got our miracle son. We got our inheritance. Soon we'll be in the promised land, surely. And everything goes awesome from there. No, really the story should probably stop. But that's not how this works. So we're going to go to Genesis 22, 1 through 14, and I'm just going to read right through it. And it's, it's a picture that we can't forget. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am, because he's Abraham. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Okay. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He responded to his son the same way he responded to God. Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abram, Abraham. He said, here I am. 
He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. That's quite an enactment. That's uh, quite the moving image. We're going to pick out a few things in here that I think we need to remember before we move forward. God confirms his faith by telling him to sacrifice his son. We cannot miss the image. That is a miracle son whose proper inheritance is the promised land. His father, okay, first of all, he rides into town on a donkey. He rides, in, rides to the place of the sacrifice on a donkey. Then his father has him carry a big heavy stack of wood for him to be sacrificed on up a hill. The long-awaited miracle son carrying a heavy pile of wood up a hill to be sacrificed, asking his father, where is the lamb? The lamb, the traditional Jewish offering to God. And there's Abraham ready with the knife to kill his son. To slit his throat, because that's what you do with a sacrifice. You let the blood out. But instead, God stops him. He can't stand it to, to have Abraham suffer that. And instead, he provides a full-grown lamb, a ram, with his head in a, stuck in a thicket, literally in a, a crown of thorns, is provided to take the place so that Isaac can live and keep his inheritance of the promised land. God provides the necessary sacrifice. Okay, now, that is a key part of the Jewish heritage. That is where they're coming from. They move from there. Isaac does, in fact, go to Canaan. But then he and his descendants, or his descendants, uh, the Israelites, they leave for a while due to a drought, and they go to Egypt. And there they have a little hiccup in this whole inheriting the promised land story. Okay? Uh, starts out good, ends up real bad. They're a blessing to the land, but then the Egyptians become jealous and fearful of them, they're worried that they'll take their inheritance by revolting and taking over. So they hold them down. They make them slaves. And they do terrible things to them. In fact, uh, we're going to go ahead and bring up Exodus uh, 12, 1 through 14. That's a Passover story. But to, to frame that, we're going to go to Egypt, to the time of Moses. Uh, and I, hopefully... Also, I, last time I preached, I talked on Moses also. He's, he's a big deal to me. 
and, and uh, because he was such a mess up. But uh, Moses comes back to the city where he was miraculously saved. He should have died. What were they doing to the Israelites? Pharaoh was throwing them in the river. The firstborn son, the one that should get the inheritance of the promised land, was being thrown in the Nile River. Somehow, Moses skirted around that and was miraculously saved, brought up as royalty, and came back to retrieve his people. When he comes back, we all recognize the story of the plagues, right? First plague, what was it? Pop quiz. Who read their Bible? Water turns to blood. That's what it is. First symbol. Must be important if it comes first. The water turns to blood. Well, what is water a symbol of? It's a symbol of life. If you're a scientist and you're looking for life, you look for signs of water. Because if there's water there, there could be life there. The symbol of life in Egypt is especially water. It's a desert nation, but it's an oasis. It's built around the Nile River. The Nile River is life in Egypt. Water is the evidence of life in Egypt. God just turned it to blood. Why? Because blood is evidence of death. You cannot hide your sins. You cannot throw the proper receivers of the promised land in the river and hide that death. That will come back up. You can't keep it hidden. But that blood will be evidence of death. Bow hunters, you see some blood, you know what that means. All you that watch all those spooky forensic shows, when you see the blood splatter, you know what that means. It's evidence. Death has been here. Well, Pharaoh doesn't heed that. He don't like that metaphor. And he ignores it. And he ignores the next eight until God sends Moses to tell him about one that he will not ignore. All right. He warns Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, uh-uh. God says, all right, go tell my people this is what's coming. Exodus 12, 1 through 14, the Passover. Go ahead, Ryan. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. A new beginning. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each man can eat, you shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. 
They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. and You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. All right, that's a lot of reading. That's a lot. Big story. Don't miss that at the end. He said, you're going to do this. You're going to remember this. This is something you need to do to remember what I'm about to do. God calls his shot every time. He tells you what he's going to do. And then he tells you how to remember what he's going to do. Do this in remembrance of me. Keep this feast in remembrance of what I'm about to do. He explains that they're going to need a spotless lamb. That that spotless lamb needs to come and live among them. You know, this lamb doesn't live in a barn. This lamb comes in your house. It's familiar. It's common to you. It's in communion with you and your family. Then you'll slay it and you'll cover the lintel and the side posts of your house with its blood. You'll bar the doors to your house with its blood. It's going to cover your house. God is coming to kill the oppressors, the murderers. The wages of sin are due. When I see the blood, the receipt of death, the proof that it's already been here, I will count it and move on. So I think we got the blood covered, right? Y'all have communicated what the blood is about and what that metaphor means throughout history. What about the bread? Well, back in the beginning there in Genesis, right before they got their skins, God told them what it was going to be like outside. He said, you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow. You're going to have to work and suffer because that's what comes along with this separation. Bread symbolizes our labor and the fruits thereof. But this is unleavened bread. What, what's the key with leaven? What is leaven all about? Leaven in the Bible always means sin. It is a metaphor for sin, more metaphors. It's the picture of sin. It's what it points to. If you're a baker, 
Leaven means yeast. What does yeast do? You bring the fruits of your labor, you get your, you get your flour, you get your water, maybe some butter, a few things, you put them all together. You add a little bit of yeast. What well, spreads throughout it, doesn't it? The yeast is no longer here, it's everywhere. It fills up the whole bowl, the whole lump on the table, all got yeast in it. You put a little in, it's everywhere. And then it rises, it puffs up. It puffs up the fruit of your labor. It makes you proud. Pride, the original sin. You know, uh, Brooks has uh, got a gym. And uh, I couldn't help but think about he and Aaron in this. And that uh, I'm pretty sure that he's met a whole lot of people that are puffed up. They're full of leaven. And they're not like Abraham. When you tell them to move, they're not ready to move because they're all puffed up, okay? We don't, we don't want that false pride. We can't have that sin. In fact, I, I messed up. That's to help keep me from having false pride. And I, I didn't give Ryan one of the notes. So if I continued from 14... The very next verse is 15. It says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Cut off. So... If we're going to get out of slavery and we're going to journey out with God and head for the promised land, apparently what we got to do first thing is get all the leaven out of our house. And then we bring the lamb into our house and live with him for a time. And then we need his blood to cover that house to protect us from the wages of sin and death. Then we can head out and move. Here I am, let's move to the promised land. We're going to do some more on that leaven. Jesus says it himself. We're going to go back to Luke, where your finger was been this whole time. I know, I know you've been having your finger right there. Luke twenty two fifteen through 16. Did I get you, Ryan? I knew I'd get you sooner or later. There we go. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's go back to that bread part. because I, I just wanted to do 15, but here we are. We'll overdo it. He said his body is the bread, the unleavened bread. Jesus is God in the flesh. Don't ever forget or miss that point. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is without sin. He is unleavened. There is no sin in him. He will be broken for you. So he is the bread of the Passover. He is without sin. He is not puffed up. What is more humble than a God who will come down and sit with you at table and eat with you, live and suffer with you? That is the definition of unleavened. All right. We're going to go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 7. This is on the bread in the now time. This is Paul writing to the churches. The churches, that's us. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ's sake, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Okay. A little more on the now. We're going to go to 1 Peter 1, verse 17 through 21. Go ahead, Ryan. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He is the bread, he is the lamb, he is the miracle son, long-awaited, overdue, whose proper inheritance is the promised land, who's here to share that inheritance with you. That is communion. It is the story of the gospel. John 3.16, I could have just come up and read that, pointed at the bread and the wine, and we could all have been having lunch by now. But that's not, that's not the thing. We've covered the reenactment and the enactment. We look back at what Jesus was looking back on. We talked about what we do now. What are we rehearsing? We're rehearsing returning to that garden in the beginning, returning to communion, to community with God. Back to that intimate relationship in common. 
So let's look forward, all the way forward, if you're in your Bible, to Re- Revelations 21, 22 through 24. Don't worry, we're near the end because this is literally the end. Okay? Heaven is coming back to earth, the new Jerusalem. And we're going to be there. Amen? With God in communion. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. We will be in continual communion in the light shining from God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit together in communion. Artists, would you come back up, please? Uh, Everybody, we're going to celebrate communion. We are going to enact and reenact and rehearse We're going to remember the was and is and is to come together. Um, They're going to sing a song. Uh, This is a time of reflection. If there's any reason you don't feel like you could be in communion with Jesus this morning, pray it out. Get it done. Thank you for sharing your time with us, and we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can, again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you want to send us a short note, a member of our hope team would reach out quickly, promptly, to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came. That's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life. And a wise man, a wise woman, builds their life on Jesus' instructions.